Hello and welcome to Active Listeners with Mike and Shane. Each week, we will discuss our lives, our goals, and our expectations as artists, as well as discuss what it is to be an artist. Performers, visual artists, and musicians. Mike and I, we want to talk to you, and we want to talk to you about what you do, why you do it, and what that art really means to you. We'll have guests to discuss artistic expression and the all-around nature of the artist's lifestyle. And try to answer that question. Is there a de facto artist lifestyle? Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and join us in the conversation. The cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, Ye all which it inherit shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Welcome to Active Listeners with Mike and Shane. This week, we are going to talk about What happens to you when you die? Not the decomposing, but the artistic life that you leave behind. The work that you've done in your life, how does that translate into how people perceive you once you're gone? And if you're lucky, it translates into a 400 plus year legacy, like the playwright of that passage that I just spoke the one and only William Shakespeare. And that passage is from The Tempest, Act 4, Scene 1. And today, our guest, Professor Paul Menzer, will speak to us about that legacy. And for any of you listeners at home who are sticklers, he did go out of his way to find the folio version of that? I did. I did. I said... Oh, I'm going to Google it real quick. And Sparknotes was like the first result. First of all, Sparknotes should never be the first result of a literary search like ever. I know they pay for it and that's why they're there, but I'm just against it on principle. I was always a fan of Sparknotes because I was super lazy, but what I found was they were a good supplement tool and not a replacement. And I think that's where the confusion comes. I think Sparknotes is doing really solid work, but they're being taken advantage of by students who don't want to do the work. Nah, come at me, Sparknotes. (laughs) Well, I guess we're not going to be sponsored by Sparknotes. (laughs) No, but in all seriousness, um, yeah, so what becomes of us when we die? What becomes of our work when we die? And that is a big question and it's one that the legacy of Shakespeare doesn't adequately answer, especially since he's probably the one exception to what happens to most artists when they pass on and they and either literally or figuratively uh, no longer creating art. And for me, it's about how that work is preserved. I think about I'm... 34 years old and I've done work up until this point but I know a lot of that's disappeared gone I don't have it it's not preserved on my end I've done a poor job of preserving myself for my post-life it's funny because we're living in the 
in this space where we imagine frequently in like science fiction movies and books and television that one day we're going to have like like an implant and on the day we die we'll be able to take that implant out and collate all of our biggest fondest memories and greatest work and send it to our loved ones as a way to like remember us and yet we all have some form of that right now and it's the facebook page right yeah the never ending constantly updated version of yourself whether it is a mask or whether it is <laughs> you spilling your truth out to the world yeah i really wish i really hope that um i achieve more than what is exemplified on my facebook page <laughs> i am more than my facebook page maybe i should move forward with that in mind well that's it's an interesting point it's it's how you will be remembered what is stored and for us currently, us doing this podcast, you know, now we are storing this version of ourselves. But prior to that, the version of myself I was storing was, you know, Facebook, Instagram. I have 18,000 Google Docs open with partial stories I've written and partial plays I've started and musings. But that's not collated in any way. Right, right. And then think about this. I mean... We're one of millions of podcasts that are now being collated and stored. So it's almost like we can't really expect to achieve a prominent memorial within all of this data harvesting without attaining some insane amount of fame or infamy for that matter. Yeah, and is the fame that you create during your life, does that translate to being remembered being remembered in your afterlife? Because uh because I I don't know, is is what you're saying of importance, you know, if someone digs down and finds these podcasts and they come across a thousand of them and, you know, they get people together and they listen to them would we survive that? You know what I mean? Is what we're saying relevant enough to our time that it would make sense for someone in the future to listen to? We got to get in the Library of Congress. Ooh. Yeah. It's the modern day Constantinople Library. Do they accept podcasts? Uh, I, don't, I think so. I think so. I mean, we're on we're on Google. We're on Apple. Yeah, so I mean, like... we're a big deal. We're, we'll be there. <laughs> Yeah, and Shakespeare certainly isn't the the only artist or creator that we will probably recall into memoriam. I mean, Beethoven, uh, Mozart will forever be performed and listened to and recorded. And that's and that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, we always talk about Shakespeare, and we talk about Beethoven, and we talk about these people who have passed so long ago and we still remember but i think of people in our modern times that might have the same impact i think robin williams you know what i mean mm. i think of that great sort of actor who not only had a great breadth of work but was also just a good person yeah yeah and so you're remembered not just for the work that you've created but you're remembered for who you were while creating that work. And I think that's important. Your deeds, for sure. Or there's some people that are solely remembered for their deeds. 
I'd like to think that going forward, uh, humanity will take stock in those things a little bit more because some of these people that we remember from the past weren't great people. <laughs> so they, no. they, you know, when it, when, it, when, boy, when it's all, when it's all, you know, said and done, uh, they were questionable in a lot of their, their ideas, uh, and their beliefs. But, you know, in 400 years, someone might look back at our podcast and say, wow, these guys are really messed up. They, you know, uh, believed in whatever, believed we in believe whatever. In. <laughs> I absolutely, you know? I absolutely see where you're coming from with that. Sure, because sure. we so often look at the material in the past through the lens of the modern age. And that isn't fair to the people who were living in that time. You know, it wouldn't be fair to judge someone on our modern morals. Sure. And there are certainly, and maybe it's my own bias, but there are certainly things that you could point to and say, well, I mean, objectively that was messed up. And like, so we're not trying of to course, excuse, of course. you know, we're not trying to excuse subjugating anyone or owning anyone or genocide or anything like that and then there's even some there's there's even some people that have come back around right because like think about like people like benjamin franklin i mean about a hundred years ago some of the revelations about the type of person that he was were taboo were considered immoral and nowadays you tell somebody that he was a fornicator and he liked marijuana and like, it's like, oh, okay, I want to hang out with Ben Franklin. <laughs> I had not even thought about how it so kind it's of going to come back. and go. Yeah. yeah. It's going to come and go for sure. He was ahead of his time. Clearly. Yes. And uh, yeah. So going into today's topic of what happens to you after you die, we want to, speak on this in a way that that doesn't bring doom and gloom to our hearts and i think and i think that framing it around how we're remembered uh is is key in in how we do that and if you want to help future generations remember us join our patreon you can join at different increments and each increment is going to get you a benefit Either that benefit is going to be a midweek quickie, access to our AMAs, or whatever other crazy stuff we decide to throw at you. Yes, yes. But we also are going to announce on the podcast today, another way you can help to support the show is you can visit our brand new merch site. We have partnered with Public to bring you active listeners podcast goodies you can get t-shirts hoodies mugs stickers masks stickers masks you can get all sorts of things that have active listeners brain pod slapped right on there and we'll even have special edition t-shirts to commemorate specific episodes like episode five with unsolicited snapcat and episode seven, Hellacious Noise, When Life Gives You Lemons, Suck Them. So go ahead to tpublic.com slash activelistenerspod and grab some merch. All right. We would like to welcome our guest, uh, Dr. Paul Menzer, right, Dr.? Paul is a professor at Mary Baldwin University. Uh, we have you here today to talk to us a little bit about what you do 
in the context of the legacy of of those that have passed. But before we get to that, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, anything else you think our listeners might be interested in. Well, it's good to be with you too. Uh, as as Mike said, I'm Paul Menzer. I'm uh, I am a, a doctor. I've been called worse. Um, <laughs> a doc a doctorate is my degree. Uh, a professor is what I am. Professes what I do. Uh, so I do like professor because it it's more descriptive um, of my daily work. I'm a professor of Shakespearean performance at Mary Baldwin University. Uh, I direct the Shakespeare Performance Graduate Program there. Um, I'm the dean of the College of Visual and Performing Arts at Mary Baldwin. Um, and I think if I get one more job, I get a free pint of ice cream at Split Banana or something, <laughs> a punch card. Great ice cream at Split Banana. Yeah, so I would, I would take that. I would take great that. Great ice cream. Get your bingo <laughs> card going. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I do teach playwriting, among other things. I, I, I consider myself, um, I mean, full disclosure, I'm a left-handed hack playwright. Um, <laughs> Having I, directed I, one of your plays, I completely agree. I, <laughs> back in agreement, Shane. We see, we see eye to eye on this one. It's hard to see eye to eye on Shane while simultaneously looking down on him. It's, it's, a, it's an expertise I've cultivated over the years. Um, Shane and I, I got to work with Shane uh, in multiple audacities. I got to work with Shane uh, uh, as his professor, uh, worked a bit on your thesis, your MFA thesis and your Emily thesis. A little bit, a little bit. A little bit of both. Um, and got to see Shane uh, on many occasions on the stage. And Shane did direct uh, a play that I wrote called The Brats of Clarence. Um, and Paul, that, I, I saw that. directed play. that a couple years back at the outdoor Oak Grove. And if I remember correctly, uh, it got rained out for the most part. We still performed, but not on the stage. That's right, we got hurricaned out. We did hurricane, got, that's what it was. We, we slummed it in the Blackfriars, I think. Yeah, oh, wow. I mean, sometimes you got to lower your, your standards, you know? Yeah. Hey, the show must go on. So yes, happy to talk about playwriting, happy to talk about Shakespeare, happy to talk about those who have passed. I like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the working title for this episode is, is What Happens to You When You Die. And when I mentioned that to Mike, he <laughs> definitely gave me a weird, inquisitive look. But I feel like when I was in your classrooms, that's a lot of what we were talking about, the, the life of an artist after they pass and how their information has been preserved and how that translates to a modern audience. That, well, you, you paid some attention then. Um, <laughs> Nailed it. And, and I will say too, that's, it's, you know, this is maybe, well, this is probably why you invited me. I'll, I'll share one thing. I'm, my current project is I'm writing a biography of Shakespeare um, commissioned by Arden for the, the new Arden Four series of the complete works. And so I'm thinking a lot. Um, I've been thinking a lot over the last year about what happens to an artist as they pass, um, after they pass, how, what remains you know, um, in all the respects of that. And maybe, uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, about Shakespeare's legacy um, and what happened to him when he passed immediately and then enduringly. For yeah, sure. we'll, we'll get to him. Let's talk about you a little more, right? Because <laughs> uh, I, am, I am curious, what is it that drew you to want to teach and, you know, teach specifically Shakespeare? What, what avenues sort of guided you to this track? Well, I mean, the, the, the broader question of why do I teach is it's, um, you know, the first couple of times I was faced or tasked to teach a class, uh, at the end of it, I thought, they pay you for this? You just, <laughs> you can, 
you can do it. This is legal. Um, it, 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 I enjoyed it. It, 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 you know, it, it sounds self-aggrandizing. It came to me, I think, relatively easily. I felt like I was at home in the classroom. I enjoyed being with students and talking about the things that matter to me uh, and I hope matter to them. And so teaching was an early avocation of mine and, and um, it's still the best part of the week. I don't get to teach as much as actually I, I would ideally like to these days with administrative work, but by far the best part of my week is, is getting to spend time in the classroom with the students. Um, why I teach Shakespeare is, is something I think a lot about. And the fact that I don't have a glib flip answer, um, I think indicates that I take that question pretty seriously as Shane knows perhaps to his grief, I have a flip glib answer for most things. But the question of why Shakespeare is actually kind of a haunting one for me. Um, and when I come back to a lot, because I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. What I will say is that, you know, I've been teaching in higher ed now uh, as a graduate student, as an assistant professor, associate full, et cetera, for about 20, 25 years. Um, and Shakespeare continues to mystify me. Shakespeare is a, a beautiful but deeply weird writer. There are things about the plays um, that I don't understand. Uh, there are avenues he starts to go down and then abandons. Um, he does things in his plays that shouldn't work and yet they do. Um, the plays are deeply flawed and yet brilliant at the same time and sometimes brilliant because of the flaws, which sounds like a good thing to say about a writer um, as though he's intentionally building defects into his plays for the sake of their brilliance, but he manages to pull things off that you really shouldn't be able to pull off. And I, I guess Shakespeare continues to interest and mystify me because there are corners of his plays that I, I continue to want to shine light into because I don't understand them. And then, you know, kind of part of, the, of what you all bring up here, his legacy, uh, his endurance is fascinating, just as a cultural force, his, his pervasiveness. I mean, just think about the fact that, you know, Pandemic notwithstanding, there will be more performances, productions of Hamlet in 2021 than there were throughout the entire English Renaissance. There will be more productions of Shakespeare in 2021 than by any other playwright living or dead. I mean, it, it doesn't make, I mean, that is astonishing. At the risk of ex overstatement or exaggeration, I don't think that there's another literary, plastic, graphic or musical art where there's one performer who so thoroughly continues to dominate that field. Obviously we can make comparisons to our Mozart, uh, et cetera, to Picasso's, et cetera, but Shakespeare is drama, drama is Shakespeare to some extent, um, to, to a, a bewildering degree. Um, and, it's, and, and that's part of the mystery to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, as uh, Shane, Shane and I, um, work with a Shakespeare company uh, up here in Troy, New York. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because we both, um, I mean, Shane more than I obviously, spent a lot of time um, studying uh, Shakespeare and learning it. And I, I, I really appreciate when you say um, <laughs> that there are still things that you just don't understand. Because like, I think a lot of people seem to think that you get to a point doing this work and and then that's it you know everything and, <laughs> and it's and it's and, it, and it's fun because like every time we do a show you know it's there's always those moments within the rehearsal room or just on at the table reads even you're like oh my god i never even realized this was here before 
Oh, and I've read this play like 15 times. You know? yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it, you know, it's not like at the end of the Matrix where now I'm through the looking glass and I just see ones and zeros. <laughs> Nouns and verbs, adjectives and adverbs streaming before me and I, it, it all makes sense. It, it doesn't. <laughs> There's still things that, you know, I'm, because I'm working on this biography, I'm reading, I should say, rereading all of his sonnets again, which I don't particularly love. I don't particularly love the sonnets. I don't think he's at his best there. Um, Better playwright than is a, a poet. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, he's in love he's clouds, great. doesn't it? Yes, yes. We always talk about love being a muse, but let's be real. It's just a, it's a clouded state. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't love this. I mean, I think actually, I mean, there's poetry of his I really like. I think Venus and Adonis is beautiful. I think his narrative poetry is, is better than his, uh, his sonnets. But, um, but, you know, I'm often reading the sonnets. I don't really know what he's on about. You know, there's, there's sort of dated diction and, and twisty syntax. Um, and I don't think it always rewards unpacking. The drama, even at its worst, often does mm. uh, reward unpacking. And, you know, I will say too, I don't love all of his plays. I mean, I think, look, I think Shakespeare wrote 16 to 18 of the greatest plays ever written and then a bunch of other ones. Sure, sure. You know, and, and then, so there's a canon within the canon. Um, and I don't think we actually pay him any compliments or do ourselves any favors to pretend that every play is as brilliant as every play. Sure. Um, Can you give us like I, a top three, bottom three? Are you comfortable with that? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I guess, you know, the, the top three is often defined by what I'm working on at the moment. Absolutely. Um, and if I have to say perennial favorites, Twelfth Night, Winter's Tale, Romeo and Juliet. Sure. Uh, Ooh, okay. For, for, for three, favorites um bottom three there's just so many i mean how do you <laughs> just so many. <laughs> i mean look i could just be done and give you a quick answer and say all three parts of henry the six that's fair that's fair that's <laughs> fair sort of to be less glib about it even in the bottom three there's always there's still things there are characters there are scenes there are, there are moments there are lines that just dazzle you never have to be Absolutely. less glib especially with us trust me <laughs> Yeah, you're you're on the glibness meter. You're 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 well in the green. It's fine. <laughs> so so then I guess I guess that brings us to the next question: Is Shakespeare immortal? Are we going to be putting Shakespeare on stage, adapting his plays into movies and and TV arcs, and until the end of man? Um, and if we're abducted by aliens will will <laughs> aliens start putting on shakespeare is that how universal his ability to uh create character is well i you know it's always too soon to say that something's immortal right i mean it is always literally too soon to say that something is <laughs> having said that i think that this i think you know probably my shorter answer is yes because at this point Shakespeare has achieved escape velocity from the value or the worth or the aesthetic qualities of his work and has become something else, has become a liturgy, yeah. uh, not literature. And, and by that, mm -hmm. I mean that there is something quasi-ritualistic in the repetition, the reproduction, the recycling, and the reperformance of his plays that, you, you know, we don't go see Romeo and Juliet anymore just to appreciate the gorgeous blank verse drama and it's gorgeous. We do it for other reasons, right? It inscribes, it inculcates, um, it allows us to perform, 
a certain fellowship, humanity, community, communion uh, with the past and with one another in certain ways that we find valuable, quite beyond what the plays are actually about. So the question of immortality, I think it's become a kind of um, perpetual motion machine of sorts in that we're not doing these, we don't continue to do these plays to try to realize or appreciate their values. We continue to do these plays to perform and produce and perpetuate the values in and them I, that, that we try to. Yeah, I always sort of question the, uh, the Shakespeare's immortality and the idea of did the other contemporaries in that time just miss the mark or did they just not have friends to create that folio that lasted so many years? You know, is it preservation of material or is it the material itself? It, you know, I guess the first thing to say is that uh, there, are, there are certain periods in time in culture where even, even average work is better than the greatest work from previous or subsequent periods, right? So e even, even some of the average, or for that matter, some of the bad drama of the English Renaissance is incredible, <laughs> right? Um, the works, I mean, and obviously the canonical works of, of Marlowe, Johnson, Ford, Fletcher, Kidd, et al. are extraordinary works. But there's a lot of fantastic work from the period by a playwright named Anonymous, right? Or, less play, or playwrights you haven't heard of. The quality of the drama in the period was extraordinary. And some of that was the cultural moment. Some of that was the competitiveness, the professional and commercial auspices that was generating uh, the drive and the need for a repertory. So there's just an awful lot of good material being produced in that period. You know, I'm parroting um, the late uh, and now much lamented Stephen Booth, who once said there are really three great periods of drama in the West. The Greeks, the English Renaissance, and contemporary American television. And, and he was being funny, but only, uh, only slightly. I mean, you know, there's extraordinary television being produced right now. Um, great quality writing on, on TV, TV standing for all of the various uh, platforms on which we experience mediated. Sure, entertainment. yeah. Um, but the question then of sort of quality and values and like why Shakespeare survived when say, you know, there are great, you know, for instance, there are great plays by Beaumont and Fletcher in the Shakespearean period. Today, Beaumont and Fletcher are really known to the extent that they're known by a small group of scholars, right? Uh, despite the value and the qualities of the plays, which, which is very high. Um, but for some reason, and this is the, the question you're asking me is why Shakespeare, right? Uh, as it turns out, it's good to be both lucky and good. He was <laughs> very, very good. He was also very, very lucky. In writing a biography of Shakespeare, one is struck again and again how lucky he was, right? The year of his birth, the plague killed about 25% of the people in Stratford. It did not kill his parents, and so therefore, and it did not kill William Shakespeare. I mean, for that matter, he survived outbreak after outbreak of the plague throughout his life. Whether he had some sort, sort of, um, I don't know, defense or immunity to it, I don't know. But he was lucky to live as long as he did live, and he didn't actually live that long. Um, he was lucky in the in the respect that, you know, in the year he was born, the profession that he ended up uh, spending his life doing didn't exist. You know, in 1564, when he's born, there are no professional playwrights. Mm. His, his ascendancy, his maturity, uh, his development coincides with an emergence of an industry that allowed his particular talent 
uh, uh, to bloom. You know, the soil has to be fertile um, where the bud lands. And his bud landed in really, really fertile soil, which sounds like a naughty line from one of his sonnets, and I didn't mean it. <laughs> but he was, he was very good. He was very talented. I'm deliberately avoiding the word genius because I don't really think it gets us very far. Extraordinarily gifted, extraordinarily talented, um, extraordinarily industrious, 36, depending on how you count, 37 plays in about 20 years of writing, um, several long narrative poems, all those sonnets. That's a lot of output, you know. And then, and Shane has already sort of gestured to this, it got published. Mm -hmm. It got mm -hmm. printed, right? So his two friends, Herrings and Condell, two actors that he had served for a long time with, seven years after Shakespeare's death, they put his collected works together. 1623, the folio of his, of his works, as you know. You know, at that point, I mean, and the folio printed um, half the plays that we have of his, right? So only half of the plays that we have of Shakespeare had been printed during his lifetime. That, you know, had Hemings and Condell not put that project together, Shakespeare's canon is, is much reduced. We don't have Macbeth. We don't have The Tempest. We don't have Twelfth Night, for that matter, and on and on, right? And, and there was no particular reason that, there was, there was no particular reason why Shakespeare's co-workers, seven years after his death, should put together a collection of his work. There was not, money, there was not much money to be made by it. It was a massive capital investment to put together a book that big. Uh, and it was, it was not quite unprecedented, but there was no literary market that had been established for gigantic collections of printed plays, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And so there was no sure profit margin to be realized by Hemings and Condell, and yet they did it. Why? I, I think that's a great question too. Um, they were clearly good friends. Shakespeare left money in his wills uh, for Hemings and Condells and some others to buy themselves memorial rings um, so that they would have to think of them every time they counted to 10 while scanning his verse, I think. Um, but Remember you know, me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you talk about the, the breadth of uh, Shakespeare's work and his output being so uh, so much. Um, one of the few things I feel like I know about you is you are a prolific writer. You you have spoke many times about the endless internet page that you can just type and type, and the scroll never ends. <laughs> um, so so talk to us about your output. You, you're talking about this biography you're writing. How long have you been working on that, uh, and when does it come out? Because I'm very interested. <laughs> Yeah, so I've been writing the biography for about as long as we've been under a pandemic. So they, they coincide. So I've been working on the biography for about nine months. Um, and I, I probably later this week, I'll put, the, I'll put the period to the last word of the, of the first draft and then it will be out. Uh, I'll send it to the publishers this summer and it'll be out sometime in um, early 2022, I think. Um, but uh, Shane, you're generous. I do love to write, and, and I generally have a few things on the boil. Um, I refer to myself as a left-handed playwright, and by that, I mean um, figuratively, of course. I can't do anything with my left hand. My left hand is essentially <laughs> a, flap, a flap of skin and tissue at the end of my left arm. It houses um, your wedding ring, that is all. <laughs> <laughs> like Richard III, it's just sort of blasted and withered. But um, I like having sort of an academic project and a creative project going at the same time. I find that they, uh, I don't know, they somehow synthesize and they so, sort of somehow aid and abet one another. Um, the creative projects 
provide me an outlet to put the gags and the jokes that probably actually don't belong in the scholarly projects. Um, and so I like keeping a couple of things going at the same time. And Shane knows too, I like, you know, generally in, in my teaching, this comes back to a teaching question. I like to open my classes with, you know, a five to 10, sometimes longer uh, minute preamble of sorts. Um, <laughs> so I, I enjoy writing lectures for class and so forth. And, and it's, a, it's a perpetual pleasure to get to write and to have a job that allows me to do it. Yeah, teaching teaching has has had has to have gotten uh, has to have been strange this past semester. Um, I imagine you you all have COVID uh, guidelines in place. You're probably doing a lot of digital classes and and all that. We are, yeah. yeah. And it's I mean it's difficult, particularly for those of us in the performing arts. You know, to do remote. hence why we're doing a digital right. podcast. Yeah. You know. <laughs> You know, I mean, I've said this before in, in other contexts, but you know, the work of the theater, that is an, it is an art of social proximity, not social distance. I mean, live theater is about getting people together in a room. That's what gives it meaning. That's what gives it value. That's what I think for those of us who love the theater, that's what, that's what we love is be, being in a room together and being transported. You know, I mean, I think, I think the last year or the last nine months or whatever it's been, last nine years, it feels like. Yeah. As, Seriously. I, I will say this. There are no silver linings to a plague, full stop. There's no silver lining here. What did, I think a lot of us who have taught for a while, who would have said in a knee jerk way, uh, you know, online teaching, remote teaching, that's not what it's about. You have to be together in the room. It's the presence uh, that makes it possible, that makes it valuable. And I still believe that, but I think it's made us ask harder questions about, well, is that true? And, and, and so what is it about, being in a room with 15 to 20 students that is qualitatively different than being in a Zoom session like this, where I'm uh, usually looking at, uh, you know, 20 blank black squares because the cameras are off uh, and you're sort of teaching into a void. And so I just make, I think, again, for those of us in the performing arts, it's making us really put pressure on ourselves to think about like, well, what is it about presence? that is so special, whether in terms of pedagogy or in making theater. Mm -hmm. And I think we all know it. I think we all believe that it's the present that makes it matter. But I think we have to go deeper and, 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 and work harder to define why that is. Yeah, we're also making it up as we go along. You know, yeah. you know yeah. I, I feel like a lot of the early Zoom productions are going to be rocky as you might expect a new medium to be and it can only get better right we are i mean in terms of zoom theater we're in the sort of i was, I was going to say we're in that sort of the everyman medieval drama era of zoom mm. theater but i don't but i don't think we're that advanced <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean because in some ways you know medieval, medieval drama is, is dramaturgically quite sophisticated and and i don't you know i don't know how far back we'd have to go to sort of sort of find the first halting you know, inchoate, uncertain um, productions of live theater, but that's where we are with Zoom theater. And, and, and like you two, I've, been, I've uh, been involved with, I've seen a few things. It's, you know, it's a mixed bag right now. Um, yeah. But I think you're right, Shane. I think it will look embarrassingly primitive compared to whatever gets produced. And I, I think it's, that's, that's the great open question is post pandemic, um, is Zoom theater just a blip, a stopgap? I don't think uh, so. I don't, I don't think it 
can be. I think there's too much infrastructure being set into this style of theater making to just kind of let it go. Well, I, I think you're right. And I, and I certainly think that one thing that, that Zoom theater is, is doing it, uh, is, is, re is helping us realize efficiencies of rehearsal practices. If nothing else, I mean, those of us, you know, those of us who make theater know how wasteful it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it is an extraordinarily wasteful practice. And I think for hundreds of years, we actually haven't realized or developed any more efficient or economically um, progressive ways to rehearse. You still need bodies in the room for, for you know, um, at least some time to get, to get the show together. And bodies inevitably get distracted. That's right, bodies get distracted and it's expensive often to get the bodies uh, in the same time, in the same place, the same time zone. Um, and, and it's been very hard to find economies of scale, to use that term, um, for how we rehearse. I think Zoom is, a, at the very least, is going to change that, right? Things like auditioning, things like rehearsing, things like production meetings, obviously um, remote meeting um, is, gonna, is here to stay. You know, oh, for sure. I'm, I'm never going to walk into a room and sit down for a production meeting ever again. <laughs> right. Why, you know, why would you? Or, yeah. you know, but also, I mean, it also sort of like, oh, you know, I, I know this fantastic actor from Vancouver, British Columbia, and another from Austin, Texas. <clears throat> I would love to have them in my show. I can't afford to fly them to Stanton and house them for even three weeks of rehearsal. Can I get them here for a weekend? You know, maybe. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think those sort of aspects, those sort of things are, are gonna stay with us. And I think live theater is gonna to start to incorporate even more so than it was already digital technologies. I mean, we were already a long way down that road with crises like this tend to only accelerate things that were already going to happen. Artists I find get stagnant and stale in the things they are comfortable with. And sometimes a plague is what forces them to be creative and what creates that next step. Yeah. Well, I mean, Shane is literal or figurative, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Shane has probably heard me say a version of this before, but theater is actually an extraordinarily conservative art, uh, which is why it has such a reputation for liberality. But I mean, in terms of our practices, the way we work, it's very conservative, right? Um, it's very traditional in the way, the way that things are done. You have a director, you have a free week rehearsal period, you have this, you have that, you have a tech week, you have all these things. And, uh, you know, in Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare theater really grooves, I think, on its, its rites, its rituals, its conventions, its traditions. And as Shane was saying, sometimes something like this is a real disruption um, that makes you sort of think, well, you know what, all those conventions, all those traditions that we really adhere to, they were once innovations too. Everything that is now conventional was once novel. Everything that is mm. now traditional was once innovative, right? Mm. So however we sort of want to bemoan the advent of Zoom theater, um, it's going to become its own convention. It's going to become its own tradition. How it gets, what I can't quite see yet is how it gets synthesized into and with the live experience, which I think a lot of us are still, are, will continue to crave. I think it's interesting that um, we've kind of seen an integration of this style of like in the box theater happening uh, in the past. I mean, I think of like, um, 
I think of those those shows that are the more like the 90s, early 2000s, all those plays that were written in like interview style or courtroom like Laramie Project you have all those shows where like it's like oh you're on stage but there's a TV on screen and you know and sometimes those are pre-recorded or sometimes it was a green room in the back and they were piping live feed you know to the to the screen and I I think I have a suspect that that is gonna make a little bit of a comeback once once we're slowly making our way into live theater again yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, and I think I think that might be one of the ways we see it remerge. <laughs> I I think I think by the way, Laramie Project was the first play I saw Shane in at Mary Baldwin. Yeah, and Mary very well could have been extraordinarily good, extraordinarily good, great performance. Um, I I think what, you, what you're getting at here though is that I think we're redefining what live means. I mean, because we are live right now, the, the yeah. three of us. Yeah. Um, we are, as far as we know, um, we are- <laughs> Back we are to the zeros up. and ones, right? Yeah, we're not, we're not synced up in space, but we're synced up in time. Um, and that's as live as it gets. Um, but I think that's what's happening right now. We're gonna redefine what, what we mean by live theater. Um, it's not, you know, uh, somebody doesn't have to be in the room with us to be live. Mm-hmm. I suppose is one of the things that we're realizing and, and I don't know that, you know, I think our, the work before us is how do, we, how do we capitalize upon that? How do we leverage the new definition of the live, the new live? I love, I love the idea of, I don't know, a thousand years from now, some archeologist digging down and finds a little flash drive of all <laughs> these Zoom theater pieces. And just like books are written about how 2020 was all about Zoom. <laughs> Right. Well, and again, sort of, you know, to pluck our theme here, it will look incredibly primitive. Yeah. yeah. Right? Um, I mean, look how, I mean, in some ways, really, it's like, you know, this is, I know that we're recording for a podcast, so it doesn't have a visual element, but, you know, the, the listener can imagine that it's just three of us um, in our little boxes on a blank screen. It's an incredibly undynamic visual medium, right? And it's not <laughs> a compelling visual. I mean, you know, you guys have extraordinary facial hair, which is, you know, <laughs> my my treat uh that i get to look at but but you know thank you again it's, you know it's just bad tv at the moment um, yeah yeah in some ways so you said something um that kind of changes a question that i wanted to ask and a kind of i would like to posit a new one so you said that shakespeare's success was a mix of talent and luck and and as you were talking about that, it got to it got me thinking about all the other, not just artists but um, innovators, that especially in the past hundred years, that were just born at a time where we were primed to receive whatever they were trying to give us. You know, uh, I think Thomas Edison. You know, I think of. Um, you know, more, way more recently, uh, you know, Steve Jobs, um, mm-hmm. Bill Gates, you know what I mean? They were born, like Bill Gates specifically, I mean, if you think about his history, he was born in what is now Silicon Valley to well-off parents and, you know, was able to flourish in his youth and develop a, you know, an intelligence that led him to create, you know, becoming 
one of the most successful, you know, um, computation innovators in the world. There won't ever be another Bill Gates. He's Bill Gates. So I think it's redundant to ask if there's another playwright that will be Shakespeare, because I think the answer to that is no. Right, because I mean, what you're describing is, is what happens when a man or woman meets the moment and, and those things happen to align and coincide. And it, and it feels faded, but it's not fate, it's accident, mm -hmm. right? I mean, think of all of the extraordinary men and women who are not William Shakespeare, who are not Bill Gates, right? Born with great talents, uh, uh, developed great aptitudes, um, generated beautiful things, that people enjoyed, uh, but have not sustained, have not endured. And I think that has as much to do with um, the moment wasn't theirs. Yeah. And that's, and that's not anybody's fault or anybody's aptitude. That's just luck, you know? Sure. Um, Shakespeare was born at exactly the right time. Um, he had extraordinary talent that he worked very hard to develop and, and cultivate. Um, but all the elements came together in the way that they came together for Bill Gates or any number of, um, thousands of men and women that we call geniuses, mm -hmm. um, but part of the genius um, is being born at the right time in the right place. Sure. sure. You shy away from this term genius. Why is that? <sighs> well, that's fair, right? I mean, you know, genius as a word has its, has its origins in, in mysticism. Um, and, 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 you know, I don't like the word genius and I don't like the word gifts. Uh, the people talk about people who have gifts. I, I you know, I like I like the idea of talent mm. um, or aptitude that people have that they work very hard to hone and develop. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I suppose I feel like I feel like genius is a mystification of of blood, sweat, and tears. You know, genius um, takes away from the creator. Yeah, and it also takes a, it also takes a work takes away from how hard the hard work of it, right? I mean, it, it, it sort of gives us the idea, you know, of Shakespeare um, sitting in a garret waiting for the muse just to sort of speak through him, that he's just the human conduit for mystical forces, right? Um, he was, you know, he was a deep and greedy reader. Um, he wrote two plays a year, extraordinarily long, extraordinarily dense, complex, plays a year on top of all that poetry. I mean, the man worked, you know, um, extraordinarily hard um, for and on his craft, right? And I think calling it a gift or calling it a genius somehow obscures some of that. For sure. Yeah, I can respect that. So when all this is said and done, all these books and biographies, all these classes taught, what's your goal? Well, what, what would you like to, to have be able to be said about Paul Menzer. What's the legacy? Yeah, what's, your, what's, what's the legacy? Well, I, you know, I would hope that I at least appreciably increased the aesthetic content of the world, that I put enough words into the world that people had the opportunity to come across those words and they either amused them um, or instructed them, um, even moved them, um, in that writing, lecturing, teaching for me is a way of, uh, contributing, you know, leaving, leaving a mark, uh, 
whether it's in ink uh, or, th or through the air. And so I do think of myself, I suppose, primarily as a, as a writer and a communicator. And I hope that, um, I hope I will have had the opportunity to sort of share thoughts and words that have meant something to somebody at some point. And that'd be enough. Noble cause. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of those words with us. Seems like right. a, a pretty natural stopping point. Uh, but we do ask all of our guests at the end of their interview to entertain us, do something, <laughs> do something fun. Uh, that can range from a lot of different things. We've had uh, artists sing. We've had people pick a book off their shelf and read their favorite passage. We've had gentlemen read their own erotic fan fiction. So we did have that once, yes. <laughs> so whatever well, you are comfortable with. There goes that option for me then. That, that, I tell you, I'll tell you what I'll, I'll, I'll do, simply because I'm sitting on my, my laptop um, and I have my files and folders before me and I've talked about the Shakespeare biography. Let me just read you um, a little bit about Shakespeare's death. How, so how much of this biography do you have written and how, at what length does it have to be? Uh, it's, you know, as Shakespeare biographies go, it's a relatively brief one. So it's about 75,000 words and some about there. Um, uh, that's, you know, and if you're sort of thinking of a sort of small paperback, that's about 200 pages. So mm -hmm. it's not an extraordinarily, in fact, it's called The Brief Life of William Shakespeare, uh, which refers to uh, the length of the book as well as one of my, one of my themes. You guys ready? Whenever you're ready, take it away. Let's do it. On April 23rd, 1616, Shakespeare died and nothing happened. His widow wept, his children grieved, but school was open the next day. Now, folks in Stratford probably noticed the passing of the big shot in the big house who made a major fortune in a minor industry, but life went on and the good people of Stratford soon returned to hoarding grain and arguing about enclosure. But whatever little splash Shakespeare's death made in Stratford, it probably did, didn't take very long for those mortal tidings to ripple around the London theater world. For if anything is transhistorically true, it's that actors love bad news. And so Shakespeare's death was probably a topic of morbid fascination or mordant hilarity, such a fine line, for actors to chew on backstage at the Globe between hands of rough and honor. You can even hear across the years the jokes they might have made. Hemings. So what do you think he died of? Condell, boredom after writing The Tempest. Just think how badly they felt when they found out he'd left them a couple of rings in his will. They paid him back in 1623 by compiling his complete works, call it even. This is an ungenerous conceit of court. And yet, as far as we know, which isn't very far at all, upon hearing of Shakespeare's death, the king's servants did not observe a moment of silence before the afternoon show. There's no record of a heartfelt pre-show encomia, no ad hoc curtain call eulogies, no retrospective season to honor the work of their former fellow. They didn't even name the Globe's foyer after him or erect a short statue to stand in for him. So while his fellow actors might have thrown some shade about his death, they did not immediately stir his ghost. The silence surrounding Shakespeare's death is striking since just 15 years earlier, he'd been the talk of the town. A cluster of references from the turn of the century suggest that he'd been a faddish favorite of London's chattering class. Famous fickle, as Shakespeare knew, in his moment had passed. To invert Johnson's famous line on Shakespeare's fame, in 1616, the year of his death, William's work was not for all time, 
but just for an age. If you visit Holy Trinity Church today in Stratford-upon-Avon, you are greeted by an unnerving sign that reads, Shakespeare's tomb is open. You'll be relieved to find that though the church is open, the tomb is safely closed. Shakespeare was buried inside, right up close to the altar itself, in an old church encircled with tombstones. Shakespeare died as he lived, center stage, surrounded by groundlings. No one seems to be counting, so it's hard to know whether more folks visit the gravesite or the birthplace, though the latter sure seems a lot busier, as coach upon coach of school children and their weary wardens nod their way through the dinky house. The sites of birth and death are less than a mile apart, which can leave the impression that Shakespeare didn't make it very far, though he had managed to accomplish quite a bit in between. Shakespeare is dead in Holy Trinity Church, but he did not die there. That almost certainly happened at a third site, roughly in between the birthplace in Henry Street and the gravesite in Holy Trinity. If Shakespeare died at home, he did so in New Place at the corner of Church Street and Chapel Lane, right across the street from the Guild Church where he would have been christened. It's important at this late point in Shakespeare's life to acknowledge that this is a fancy too. He may not have died at home in bed, surrounded by family and friends. Shakespeare might have died literally anywhere in Stratford or its surroundings, dropping, say, of a massive infarction while bollocking a tenant of a, over unpaid tithe. Less romantic, equally likely. You can visit New Place today, though the house is long gone. You might leave feeling a bit like Shakespeare's first audience, your pockets lighter, having given something for nothing. Still, you can stroll the grounds where the house once stood and imagine what it looked like back in the day. You will probably, without knowing it, pass over or just under the very spot where Shakespeare's heart beat one last I am. Imagine that moment, just think of it. Maybe as Shakespeare expired, breathed his last breath, he thought of everything he had not said, of everything he had left unwritten, just possibly in his last lucid moments, just before he passed from earth to eternity, he gave a ruthful smile since he realized he alone had the perfect words to describe it. Beautiful. Round of applause. Yeah, that was, yes. that was great. You know, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that when you're writing, you like to have a scholarly project and uh, a piece of entertainment. And, you know, I, I couldn't tell you which that was and I think that I think that's perfect I think that's a great way to end this podcast and a thousand thanks for coming out and taking the time to talk to us what a pleasure what a pleasure thank you all good to thank see you, you so much and good to meet you Mike thank you Dr. Paul Menzer we really appreciate you having you on the show and now we're going to move into listener engagement Shane what do you have for us this week this week Mike and I would like to hear from our audience, what is it that you hope you are remembered for when you pass? Please find us on Twitter at ActListPod, A-C-T-L-I-S-T-P-O-D, or check us out on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash ActiveListenersPod. Take a minute and join in the conversation. Peace.
If you like what you hear, leave us a rating. And if you really like what you hear and you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash active listeners pod and become a patron. Our theme music, It's a Trap, was created by Remodel. Thanks for listening.